This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. We are grateful, God, that you have given us your word. And we know that there is no prophecy that was ever produced by the will of humans. But instead, people spoke from you as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you will illuminate the word tonight and that we will say in a united sense that we are fellow servants and that we focus our attention on Jesus. We worship Jesus because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Tonight I want to present this third teaching installment regarding the parousia, that is the second coming of Jesus Christ. In order to do that, I want to start in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Follow along with me as the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or by a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion or the departure comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So I want to address tonight some common errors or misconceptions and then share some additional insights regarding where we are as the prophetic clock winds down. When I shared my last message, uh, not only here in Salt Lake, but also on YouTube, Facebook, uh, on my website, as well as the Courageous Church website, I received quite a few comments and a number of questions, many of which uh, were excellent questions that I believe deserved answers from. In fact, after sharing the message with my neighbor in Las Vegas where I live, I woke up at 4 in the morning the next day, got out of bed, went into my office, and wrote out this entire message in a matter of about an hour. That was a number of weeks ago. That was several months ago. So trust me, I've had a lot of time to further research and to chew on this and uh, to, to work uh, in prayer the, the uh, principles that I want to share with you tonight. So by way of review, Jesus 
foretold the destruction of the temple to his disciples. Remember, they were looking at the buildings and commented to Jesus, what amazing buildings these are. And Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. And it prompted two questions from the disciples. Question number one, when will these things be? Question number two, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, I want you to note as you look at any prophetic passage that there is a principle in prophetic scripture called the principle of double reference. And it simply means that sometimes a prophecy was made or a statement was shared that had an immediate fulfillment and also a future one. It's not true in every case, but, but often it is. A case in point, Abraham is told that through his seed, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, we know that he couldn't have a child. He and Sarah were both beyond years. And yet, miraculously, Isaac was born. Fulfillment of the prophecy, correct? And yet we know that if we are Christ's, not if we are Isaac's, if we are Christ's, we are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise because the promise is fulfilled in Jesus. And all the ends of the earth are blessed through Jesus. Isaac is just a, a, a human in, in the long line, correct? And we can look at many cases like this. Jesus shares, in response to these questions, ten signs. I know you're familiar with them. Some will say there's eight, some will say there's twelve, but I see ten. And these aren't signs in the sense that we often think of them. As I've shared with you before, these are trends. These are indicators. I like to call them precursors. They are fulfilled or are being fulfilled in our lifetimes. And they are recorded in the Olivet Discourse. And as you know, it's recorded in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. You can compare those passages later. Let me just give you the 10 quickly. We'll put them up on the screen. Number one, counterfeit Christ leading many astray. Number two, wars and rumors of wars. Number three, famine. Number four, earthquakes in various places. Number five, pestilences or extreme infectious epidemic diseases. Number six, persecution of followers, both Jews and Christians. Number seven, a falling away or an apostasy, betrayal and hate. Number eight, religious deception, not false Christs, but now false prophets leading many astray. Number nine, rampant sin, immorality, and the diminishment of love. And finally, number 10, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, proclaimed in all the world as a witness to every nation. Now, in Luke 21, 9, Jesus shares these indicators and then says, don't be troubled. These things must take place but the end isn't yet. In Matthew 24, verse 8, he says these are 
the beginning of birth pains. Very interesting statement by Jesus. So the first error, as we look at these signs of the times, is that one of these, or a combination of these ten, is the sign. That is incorrect. The most popular that you'll find in books today, or on Facebook or YouTube as teaching is being shared is deception. Deception is the sign. That's very popular. Or apostasy, that's another big one. There's going to be an apostasy, a falling away, then Jesus will be revealed. Or the last most popular is that the gospel proclamation, that's what we're waiting for. That's the sign that will take us to the end. But the explanation for this error is simple. It's good exegesis. Exegesis simply means to let the Scripture speak for itself. Don't come to God's Word with your preconceived ideas and don't read your philosophy or your conclusions into the text. That's called eisegesis. That's where we put ourselves, our conclusions, into the Word of God. Instead, exegesis means to Draw from. Let the Word of God speak to us. And the Word of God is very clear. Jesus is clear. He says the end is not yet. Even though all these things can be taken place. What he's saying is like contractions prior to a human birth. The contractions aren't the birth. The contractions point us to the birth. And he says in the same way, these signs are going to point you to the main event, but they are not the event. And so we shouldn't get bogged down in the signs or the trends. So what is the sign? Because that's what the question was. What will be the sign? Not what are the signs. They said, what will be the sign? And Jesus answered, according to Jesus, Matthew 24, 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. He says, you're going to see it, it's abominable, it's prophetic, and it'll happen in the holy place. Search the scriptures. The holy place refers to the temple. It's God's temple in Jerusalem. We can split hairs over whether it's the holy of holies or whether it's the holy place, but it's the temple. That's where this abomination will take place. It's called the abomination of desolation, and it's the beginning of the end. Now remember, Jews are conscious of their sin. They have been raised in a mosaic framework Understanding Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission for sins. And so the Jews practiced blood sacrifice throughout their history. Thus, a temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And sacrifice, blood sacrifice, will be reinstituted. And the man of sin... The Antichrist will enact a treaty or a covenant, an agreement, possibly arranging for 
the temple reconstruction on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem? We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. But he will negotiate an agreement with Israel and apparently neighboring nations. Then we know that the Antichrist will break the treaty. He will stop the reinstituted sacrifice. And he will desecrate the Jewish temple, proclaiming himself to be God. This abomination marks the midway point of Daniel's 70th week. Now, I refer you back to the first two messages, Second Coming of Christ. They're on CourageousChurch.com, YouTube. They've been aired on Facebook. And if you didn't hear those messages, I'll add a lot of information that many of us have already heard. Jesus says again, Matthew 24, 21, For then there will be great tribulation, such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever will be. You ever realize a lot of time we look back at the first century? We look back to the life and ministry of Jesus. We look back to the parables and teaching of Jesus. We look back to his passion, death, burial, and his resurrection. And rightly so. But tonight I'm here to tell you that we need to be looking forward because he is coming again. And there are a lot of believers today who are living, looking backwards, not realizing he's coming again. And we have not only a job to do, but we want to make sure we are ready when he comes. And it may be sooner than we think. Now, there are three primary passages that make up the references to this abomination of desolation. They're found in Mark, uh, Matthew 24, Daniel chapter 9, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's go to Daniel 9.27 quickly. Remember, it's Gabriel who gives this word. It's Gabriel who appears to Daniel. This is not Daniel writing. This is Daniel copying. Gabriel says, 70 weeks are determined on your people. And he goes on and he talks about the rebuilding of the temple. He talks about the coming of Jesus Christ. He talks about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then he talks about this ruler who will come. And we'll pick it up there. Daniel 9.27. He, this is the Antichrist, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. We learn already it's a seven-year period. A week. Seven years. One seven. And in the middle of the seven, in the middle of a seven-year period, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Seemed pretty clear, doesn't it? Very clear. The second error, popular even among believers, is that Daniel chapter 9 was fulfilled in 168 B.C. by the Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes of Syria. He invaded Jerusalem. He raided the Jewish temple. History tells us he stole its treasures, and then he set up an altar to Zeus. Not to himself, 
He set up an altar to Zeus, and he sacrificed swine on the altar of the temple. I'll grant you he may be a type of the Antichrist, but both Jesus Christ and then Paul later state 200 years after that event that the event Daniel's speaking about is future. It cannot be Antiochus Epiphanes. Didn't take place then. We're looking to the future, not the past. The reality is in the mouth of two or three witnesses, we let every word be established. And this is true in biblical interpretation, as well as when we bring uh, an accusation against someone, witnesses are important. It's not just one's word against another. And in Scripture, we don't take a single verse that says something and then build a doctrine around it, or we may find ourselves among the ranks of non-Christian cults. Two or three witnesses, let every word be established. We have the testimony of Daniel. We have the words of Jesus. We have the statements of Paul. And so we know that we can trust the unity of these passages as we study the word and let it speak for itself. The third error, and probably the most popular today, is that in 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple fulfilled all All the Apollo, uh, 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 I can't say the word, the apocryphal predictions, all those prophecies by Daniel, by Jesus, by Paul, and even by John, they say the book of Revelation was already fulfilled. It's all done. So let's look at history. Historically, General Titus, who led the Roman army to put down the Jewish revolt in Judea, invaded Jerusalem, and he attempted to breach its walls. He couldn't. And so he built a siege wall around the walled city of Jerusalem. No one could get in, and no one could come out. And for five months, the siege lasted. And then ultimately, with the Jews starving, he attacked and he began setting fire to Jerusalem. And he sent the 10th legion to breach the wall surrounding the old city and the temple. The idea was when the temple falls, when the temple's destroyed, the Jews will lose hope. General Titus, in this view, is the Antichrist. Apparently, he enacted a treaty and then broke it and then stopped the sacrifice, and then set up his image in the temple. And yet, this is not the record of history at all. The view is called preterism. We contrast it with futurism. Futurism, the events are yet to come. Preterism, they already took place. Preterists believe that the scriptural prophecies regarding Christ's second coming and the book of Revelation have already been fulfilled in 70 A.D. You might not have heard that before, but I want you to know there's a very large segment of Christianity that, that believes that to be true. But as futurists, we believe these events are yet to come. 
Of course, this is clarified by Christ first. Matthew 24, 21 again, for then there will be great tribulation. Then, great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. You can compare many, many worldwide events that have taken place since 70 AD as Jerusalem was invaded. You can find many, many conflicts, many, many sieges, many, many occasions where what took place in nations or in regions was much worse than what took place in Jerusalem. To contrast, a million Jews died in 70 AD at about, over about a five-year period of time. During the 20th century alone, between 110 and 125 million people have died in wars. That's a hundred times more people that died in the 20th century than died in 70 AD in Jerusalem. And then Paul goes on in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. He says, then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus, listen, will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So Paul here describes the death of the Antichrist at the second coming of Christ. So my question is, how did General Titus die? It's an important question. Well, not only did Titus not die in 70 AD, Jesus also didn't return then to stop the assault with all his holy angels and with an innumerable number of saints, as Scripture tells us. Rather than being destroyed by the breath of Christ's mouth that is coming, Titus returned triumphantly to Rome in 70 AD. And then he served under his father, who was the Caesar. And at his father's death in 79 AD, he became Titus Augustus, emperor of Rome. We often hear in teaching and preaching about Titus, but we didn't realize he became the emperor? Yeah. The Roman emperor until 81 AD. His death? Well, he came down with a fever. Possibly malaria. Or it's speculated that he may have been poisoned by his brother, Domitian who claimed the throne at Titus' death. Titus died in his bed September 13th, 81 AD, at the age of 41. Doesn't sound to me like Jesus destroyed him with the breath of his mouth. Before he died, he finished a sports complex which his father had begun. You've heard of it, the Roman Colosseum. It was finished by Titus, dedicated by Titus. A hundred days of games. Do you know that 400,000 people would die in the Colosseum dedicated by Titus? Doesn't sound to me like God stopped the evil work of General Titus. After his death, his brother erected a memorial in his honor. His death in 81 A.D. 
the Arch of Titus stands to this day. You can view it outside of the Colosseum, and it depicts in one of the scenes carved into the stone the deification of Titus. It literally shows Titus riding in his carriage up into heaven, a god. And then another one of the carvings shows his 70 A.D. victory over and destruction of Jerusalem. And in that depiction, which you see on the screen, here it is, from the temple, the menorah that he took. And the table of the showbread. Historically, he took those items and many other articles of the temple and he paraded them through the streets of Rome in great celebration for putting down the Jews. So obviously, we don't have a fulfillment of the second coming of Christ in 70 AD. It is still to come. The fourth heir. All generations since Jesus Christ, since the first century, believe they're living in the last days. Well, in a sense, it's true that they believed it. We know the scoffers have been around since the first century saying, where's the promise of his coming? Everything seems the same since the fathers fell asleep. But in every generation, there's been this, this sense that an imminent return of Christ is at hand. But the reality is, while the earth has groaned and travailed in anticipation of the coming of Christ, and seeming indicators, trends, sure, could have taken place in every generation, the stage was not set for prophetic fulfillment of these prophecies until 1948 and 1967. It's the reality. So what's different now? What's different for us? In 1948, Israel became a, genera uh, became a nation once again. Remember, since 70 AD, the vast majority of Jewish survivors fled Israel, or they were driven out, and for 2,000 years, they wandered the earth without a homeland until 48. And then 1967, what happened? Israel wins a six-day war over Egypt, Syria, Jordan. Those are Bible cities, Bible nations, right? Some things just never change, do they? Their territory is doubled, and the old city of Jerusalem is captured from Jordan. Israel already possessed part of Jerusalem. Now they possess it all. The defense minister of Israel, Moshe Dayan, on June 7, 1967, said these words. This morning, the Israel Defense Forces liberated Jerusalem. We have united Jerusalem, the divided capital of Israel. We have returned to the holiest of our holy places, never to part from it again. The momentum continues. 
The circle of peace, we've talked about it before, it expanded in 2020 as Israel made peace with four more countries in the region. Now there are six. Egypt, Jordan, the the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco. And already Israel has official missions in five of the six. And yet we all know tensions still exist regarding the Temple Mount and even regarding the existence of the Jews and their right to a homeland. And those tensions continue. Now listen, in order to have a treaty which allows for the temple and allows for animal sacrifice and then to have that treaty broken, halting such animal sacrifice, leading to the ultimate desecration of the Jerusalem temple. In order for those things to happen, what has to happen first? The temple has to be rebuilt. Got to happen. And to do so, Israel must be a nation. And Jerusalem must be its capital or under its control. And trust me, the Jews want it no other way. They don't want control of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city of our great king. It's their capital. And so it was momentous on December 7, 2017, when President Donald Trump declared recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital, and then went further in May of 2018, and he transferred our U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. The U.N. Security Council was so upset in December 2017, they held an emergency meeting. 14 of the 15 member nations condemned Trump's decision. But the United States is one of five nations with the veto power. And they vetoed the decision, and the motion was dropped. The resolution was denounced in furious language by our U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley. She described what had taken place as an insult that would not be forgotten. The United States will not be told by any country where we can put our embassy. Then she said it would be scandalous to say, she said this on the floor of the UN, it would be scandalous to say that we are putting back peace efforts. The fact that this veto is being done in defiance of American sovereignty and in defiance of America's role in the Middle East peace process is not a source of embarrassment for us. It should be an embarrassment to the remainder of the Security Council. Now listen to this. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu responded, quote, Thank you, Ambassador Haley. On Hanukkah, you spoke like a Maccabee. You lit a candle of truth. You dispelled the darkness. One defeated the many. Truth defeated lies. Thank you, President Trump. The point of all this is the focus is Israel. The focus is Israel. Remember the The word given to Daniel by Gabriel was, this is about your people, Daniel, and your holy city. This is about the Jews, and this is about Jerusalem. 
It's worth noting that the permanent UN Security Council members with the veto are China, France, Russia, and the United Kingdom, and those four voted against Israel. Only the U.S. stood, and then, of course, 10 other nations who get a two-year term on the Security Council all voted against Israel. They voted against the Jews. They took their stand against God's people. You see, this nuclear proliferation that's taking place in Iran, in Russia, Syria, by these enemy nations, it, it points to the beginning of the end. Jesus says, unless those days be shortened, no flesh would survive. And don't forget 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. But we've seen the mystery of lawlessness at work. It's at work in the world. It's been at work in America. And now we see it at work in the world again and finding its way back into America. So the last days are characterized by these qualifying realities, not simply biblical predictions that are haphazardly or culturally applied or generationally applied. So with these, we, with these things in mind, what can we anticipate? Just a few more thoughts. Daniel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael. Now we already have Gabriel on the scene. Now we have a second archangel, Michael. Wow. Michael shall arise, the great prince who has charge of your people. Who are Daniel's people? The Jews. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream, one on the other bank. Someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long will it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand, and he raised his left hand toward heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, one year, times, two years, and half a time, half a year, three and a half years from the abomination of desolation, from the breaking of the covenant, seven years of tribulation, but the great tribulation making up the second three and a half years after the Antichrist desecrates the temple. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard it, but I didn't understand. And then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. Now, in wrapping it up, let me just ask the question, what about America? 
what role do we play? You know, we've always thought of ourselves pretty favorably. You know, we're the great Christian nation. We've sent the missionaries to the ends of the earth. But sometimes we overlook some of the stark facts about America. Billy Graham put it this way on July 19, 2012. He said, my heart aches for America. The wonderful news is that our Lord is a God of mercy. And he responds to repentance. If God doesn't punish America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's just think about a couple things. Since 1973, Roe v. Wade, more than 62 million innocent babies have been aborted, murdered. That is more deaths than all U.S. military conflicts since our founding. Any idea how many people have died in military wars? How many Americans? 1.2 million. 1.3 million babies are aborted in America every year since 1973. The murder of innocence cries out for vengeance. This is why I believe we should be getting our house in order. Because I believe God has about had enough. God said to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. After he slayed Abel. That's Genesis 4.10. Jesus warns us, for as it were in the days of Noah, so will will be in the coming of the Son of Man. In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and everything was fine. They were marrying and giving in marriage. Everything was fine. Up until the day when Noah entered the ark, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Matthew 24. Daniel says many will run here and there. Planes, trains, and automobiles. For a long time we thought, well, maybe one day we could take a trip into outer space. Maybe we could circle the globe. Possibly go to the moon. Now you know what people are talking about? Maybe going to Mars. And he says the knowledge will increase. Talking about technology. Technology. Bear with me just for a second. How many of you have one of these? It's called a smartphone, right? Back in 1973, Motorola invented... The first mobile phone, it's called a brick phone. This is it. This isn't the phone, but this is the model. First phone. That's where we started. Plug it into the car. It's a mobile phone. And then as technology advanced, we got the flip phone. Be sure to put up your antenna. The size of that. More advancement, the flip phone got smaller. Remember that? 
And then we got sophisticated with the BlackBerry. The BlackBerry. You could answer your phone, you could make calls, but you could also email, receive email, and you could contact multiple people simultaneously. What a breakthrough. They're no more. They're gone. Forgot to mention this baby. It's always great to have one of these along, depending on where you were. A mobile phone, you just have to plug it into your car. But it was great having a phone. I felt like I was home. But think about the technology in the smartphone. See, we're talking about more than style here. We're talking about technology. Because the iPhone today versus the Apollo 11 computer, the AGC, the Apollo Guidance Computer, our iPhone has one million times more memory than the computer that took the astronauts to the moon and back. And our, our smartphone has 100,000 times more processing capability than that computer. Think about it. We're talking about technology. What about human cloning? What do you think God thinks about that? In 1952, it began. 96, Dolly the sheep was cloned. First mammal. 98, 50 mice were cloned and ate calves. 2001, a human embryo. 2002, five bulls. We learned how to clone rabbits and kittens. In 2002, the first human baby girl, they, they named her Eve, was cloned. 2003, the first baby boy. Also that year, three mules. The University of Idaho and the universe, or Utah State University also cloned a mule in that year. And rats. In 2009, rescue dogs were cloned and quarter horses from champion quarter horses. In 2011, in another nation, they cloned super sniffer dogs for airports. They cloned them from dogs that were amazing at sniffing out drugs, and they're cloning them today. In 2013, human skin cells were cloned. In, in 2021, an endangered species, a rare ferret, was cloned from frozen cells of one of its ancestors. That's human cloning, and it's going on right now. And what about artificial intelligence? We're talking about knowledge increasing. We're living in it. I, I want you to compare it to the Tower of Babel. Intelligence demonstrated by machines outside of consciousness and emotion. Human intelligence can be so precisely described that a machine can be made to simulate it. We're talking about artificial be uh, beings who are endowed with human-like intelligence. Now, who would do this and why? Why did they build the tower? In Genesis chapter 11, they said this, verse 4, let's make a name for ourselves. And let's build a tower up to heaven and we'll shake our face, our, our fist in the face of God. 
It's a quest for the supremacy of mankind. It's a tower that reaches to the heavens or a computer that can dominate humankind in order to demonstrate glory in self, independence rather than the glory of God, dependence. There's a line being drawn, and we got to decide whose side we're on. The bottom line, I'll close it. Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until all is fulfilled. So the question everyone asks is, well, what's a generation? What does that mean? Is it 40 years? Is it 70 years? Or is it 100 years? All three of those are definitions of biblical generations easily proven over and over again. Or is it people living at the time the events unfold I think we get into a lot of danger when we try to take 70 years or 100 years and we add to 48 or we add to 67 and we say we only have this many years and this is going to happen and that because we don't know. In fact, Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour. But he says at the time and the seasons we shouldn't be ignorant. We should be aware. The reality is we are not improving. The earth is full of violence. While we increase in knowledge, we lack wisdom and understanding. We are in the midst of moral decay, sin, and lawlessness. And so finally Jesus says, Matthew 24, 32, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. In another place he says, consider the fig tree and all the trees. And some say, oh, the fig tree is Israel. It could be, but it might not be. He says, just as the trees will bloom in spring then you know summer is near. And he says in the same way, learn the lesson of a fig tree. When it, its branch becomes tender and it puts out its leaves, you know that summer's near. So also when you see all these things, you know that it's near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus is coming maybe sooner than we think. And if not, and we live like he is, and we make a difference in the earth, and we lead someone else to Christ, that's a great thing too. But I'd keep your eyes on the eastern skies. Lift up your heads, because our redemption does draw near. I'm going to ask Adam and Sean to come back, and I'm going to pray. Let's just stand, because we've been sitting for a while, and we'll close this out, and I'm going to ask them to sing one last song. Jesus, we look back and believe you have been raised from the dead. We are impacted by your life and compelled to go. And we look forward now and we know that our King is coming. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at CourageousChurch.com.